You're listening to Professionalism Matters podcast series, where we discuss important matters impacting on our professionalism and remind ourselves why our professionalism really matters. Professionalism is the set of values, behaviours and relationships which underpins the trust the public has in doctors, nurses and health and social care professionals. In conversation with our expert guest, we shall explore some of the greatest dilemmas in professionalism and ethics in modern healthcare practice. And together with our audience, we hope to find some of the solutions. My name is Professor Dennis Harkin. I'm a surgeon and chair of medical professionalism at the Centre for Professionalism in Medicine and Health Sciences at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Today's episode of Professionalism Matters is on First, do no harm. Primum non nocere is a Latin phrase that means first, do no harm. The Hippocratic Oath tells us we must do what I consider for the benefit of my patients and to abstain from whatever is deleterious or mischievous. A closer phrase perhaps derives from Hippocrates' other great work of the epidemics which says the physician must be able to tell the antecedents, know the present and foretell the future, must mediate these things and have two special objectives in view with regard to disease, namely to do good or to do no harm. Non-maleficence, which is derived from the maxim, is one of the principal precepts of biomedical ethics. Non-maleficence is often contrasted with its corollary, beneficence, which is to do good. It reminds healthcare professionals to consider the possible harm that any intervention might do. Of course, no physician should set out to do something harmful, but if we took first do no harm, literally, no one would have any surgery or intervention, even if it was life-saving, for fear of doing harm. So, you join us today, and I'm delighted to be joined by our guest, Dr. Henry Marsh, CBE, pioneer of neurosurgical advances in Ukraine. Dr. Marsh was until 2015 the senior consultant neurosurgeon at the Atkinson Morley Wing at St. George's Hospital, South London, one of the country's largest and greatest specialist brain surgery units. He specialises in operating on the brain without anaesthesia or under local anaesthesia and was subject of a major BBC documentary, Your Life in Their Hands, in 2004. His widely acclaimed and best-selling memoir, Do No Harm, Stories of Life, Death and Brain Surgery, was published in 2014. And a second memoir, Admissions, A Life in Brain Surgery, was published in 2017. In April 2021, Dr. Marsh announced that he'd been diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer and thankfully is now in remission. And his most recent book, published in 2022 to critical acclaim, called And Finally, explores the bewildering transition from doctor to patient. Dr. Marsh is a patron of My Death, My Decision, an organisation which seeks more compassionate approach to dying in the United Kingdom. 
and he has had a career-long commitment to education worldwide and in particular with Ukraine. And despite the illegal invasion of Ukraine, he continues to visit Ukraine regularly to teach and advise local doctors. So, with your permission, Henry, I would like to chat to you today about something that really matters to professionalism, <clears throat> the principle of first do no harm. We will explore from your personal reflections and insights you've gained what we would hope you would like to share in terms of lessons learned for our listeners, which may also help them to cope with similar experiences if they were to encounter them in future. And for the benefit of our listeners to consider the problem in depth, we shall use the reflective approach of what, a description of the event or the occurrence, so what, an analysis of that event and how it impacts, and now what, what lessons we have learned to go forward with. So Henry, without any further ado, our topic is first do no harm, a principle very close to your own heart. Um, could you describe to us what that phrase means to you, Henry, um, and uh, uh, expand on that for our listeners? Well, <clears throat> the phrase to me means it's, it's impossible as a surgeon to never do any harm. Um, one has to have a utilitarian ethic where you say, yes, every time I operate, there's some risk it'll go badly wrong, but that risk is justifiable because more people on balance will benefit than will come to harm. Um, so the, well, Hippocrates never said it. Apparently, do no harm was introduced in the 18th century in France. But it is, in a sense, um, an, an unrealistic ethic. Um, and what's always fascinated, I, I became a doctor because I wanted to be a surgeon, because I just love using my hands. But before I studied medicine, I'd studied philosophy and politics and economics at Oxford University. I've always had a slightly philosophical bent. And I've also had two periods in my life when I've had psychotherapy. And I've been, I've always been extremely interested by the psychology of being a surgeon and how we cope and deal with the fact we do sometimes cause harm. And of course, neurosurgery is one of the most harmful medical specialties. All, all medical specialties have areas of harm. If you're a psychiatrist, your patients might commit suicide. If you're a family doctor, you might miss a serious diagnosis. But neurosurgery, the morbidity in, and mortality in neurosurgery is, is very high. Um, and when I wrote my first book called Do No Harm, in retrospect, I didn't quite realize what I was doing. It was a version of my diary, and my diary, which I've kept all my working life <clears throat> and earlier, was really a form of sort of psychotherapy, trying to describe, because I knew I lived an extremely interesting life as a neurosurgeon. I saw extraordinary, wonderful, terrible things, and I wanted to put that into words. It brought it myself. It was my wife, who's an anthropologist, who told me it had to be a book. So when I'm asked, why did you write the book? I say, well, my wife told me to, and that really is entirely true. But the problem is, as a, as a patient, and I speak now, obviously, with personal experience, it is intolerable to think your doctor can make mistakes or that things won't go well. So I'd always go and see my patients the night before the operation, because I lived near the hospital, and I felt sort of sorry for them, 
faced by a terrifying operation <clears throat> next day. And they'd say, oh, Mr. Marsh, I have 100% confidence in you, kind of confusing their confidence with me with the fact I told them earlier, you know, the operation is not 100% guaranteed to work. And all surgeons carry a burden which gets bigger as the years go by of operations which have not gone well. I, I start my Duna Harm book with a quote by the great French surgeon, René Le Riche. Um, I wish I'd written it myself, saying that all surgeons carry within themselves an inner cemetery. And it's a place you have to go, through, go to from time to time and contemplate your mistakes. Because the whole point is everything in life, we learn most from mistakes. In a strange sort of way, success is bad for us. It blunts us. It makes us overconfident. So mistakes are incredibly important for learning and getting better. But the problem is the price paid by our patients and to a lesser extent by ourselves when things have gone badly um, is, is terrible. And we have all sorts of psychological defense mechanisms whereby we sort of shield ourselves from admitting, often to ourselves, let alone to anybody else or the patient, that actually we have not done things as well as we should have done. At the same time, I certainly became a surgeon, a neurosurgeon, because I was attracted by risk. It was exciting. It was dangerous. And that's what drew me to it. But I was a sort of naive, self-confident, self-important young man. Um, and I didn't realize at that stage, in fact, there were risks in the long term to me as well. Um, and again, this is another aspect of it. We have to do dangerous things. We like doing dangerous things. But then we have to deal with the consequences. Um, and what I've realized, I've only really articulated this clearly to myself, actually since retiring, or he's retiring from operating, I still teach, which is the critical thing in medicine, in surgery, is, is actually teamwork. It's not a panacea, there are problems and drawbacks of teamwork, but I can think of so many occasions in my career when things went badly, and I should have sought help from my colleagues, but I was either too proud or too confused, and partly certainly 30 years ago, um, the culture in the NHS was pretty cruel and dismissive when you were supposed to, you know, get on with it. Um, but, but increasingly now, it seems to me that really the one of the critical balances we have to find as surgeons is between being the ambitious, striving people we are, which most of us are, surgeons are like that. You know, surgery is an addiction, we love it. Um, it's very hard for a surgeon to feel he's operating too much. Certainly that was my, my attitude. But we have to learn how to balance that tremendous egotism against the, against the fact we will make mistakes. And our best defense against that is having good colleagues who will point that out to us because we're so bad at criticizing ourselves because that is human nature, the so-called optimism bias. So although the, the book Do No Harm is, is really just a series of stories, I wrote the book as a sort of factual thriller without really drawing many conclusions overtly about what I'd learnt. Now in my, my medical lectures, 
uh, I tell a few stories, but it's mainly about the conclusions, which is especially about the difficulty we have as surgeons of finding a balance between being very self-important driven individuals and actually being good colleagues and having good colleagues. Henry, I recognise a lot of uh, what you say as a vascular surgeon myself um, in, in mid to later career now. Um, you speak with a lot of uh, experience, a lot of knowledge and, and a lot of thought. Um, do you feel that it is possible for a surgeon or a doctor um, or any healthcare professional to truly separate the personal from the professional in terms of our approach to the job uh, or how we cope with the job? Because clearly you, you've mentioned the impact that some of these um, uh, very uh, difficult decisions, time sensitive, uh, dealing with uncertainty that we have to make on a daily uh, basis. Well, I suppose it depends to some extent on the branch of surgery you're in, and it depends on your personality as well. Um, I'm a fairly emotional person, so for, so I used to go up and down uh, tremendously. I think most surgeons do to a greater or lesser extent. Where we vary is how much we express it. Um, and traditionally, surgeons did not talk about their feelings, and they didn't really talk about their feelings to themselves either and obviously it's a balance i don't want certain you know you need resilience one of the things that troubles me a bit about um surgical training now is whether the new generation of surgeons again have the resilience which certainly our generation had to have because you worked such long hours and you worked so hard it it made you strong but it also could brutalize you a bit as well again it was a a, a difficult balance. Um, no, I, I, you know, for me, it was uh, being a surgeon is, is a very passionate thing. It's not an abstract, cold thing at all. You know, operating is incredibly exciting. You're focused intensely. I mean, it, oddly, it sounds a slightly daft thing to say, but when I came under fire in Ukraine recently, although the missiles are all being shot down, I'm happy to say, you live really intensely. And I it's a bit, I almost enjoyed it, and it reminded me of doing a really difficult operation when you're living very, very intensely in the present. So for me, medicine has always been a very, very emotional business, as well as which I love caring for patients. I would get terribly upset when, when patients came to harm. I often worry that in retrospect, now having become a patient myself, I do see more clearly just how detached I was. I mean, I thought... I, I hope most of my patients felt I was kind and caring. But when I, now that I know what it felt like, particularly when I was first diagnosed with cancer, which sounded as though it had a terrible prognosis, um, which it probably hopefully doesn't, um, I really didn't, was not exposing myself at, when I was in practice to the whole spectrum of what my poor patients are going through. And so much of what goes on in hospitals the regimentation is all about you know, preventing patients becoming an emotional burden to the staff. We hate anxious patients because, of course, anxiety is contagious. And the uniforms and the discipline and all that and the notices everywhere is all about telling patients, you must shut up, don't complain. You know? And this is corrupting, of course. I mean, it's necessary. We all need to be detached as doctors. 
but you can get huge attached and power, power corrupts and is again one of these very difficult balances. Again, I think the, the best way of finding that balance is, is good leadership, having senior surgeons who set an example, both in terms of honesty, talking about things going wrong. I'm not saying they should tell the public or the patients even, but honest within their professional group. And, you know, showing that you can have, you, you can express your feelings to some extent and help each other. I think my impression is now my, my colleagues work in a much more difficult, litigious, managed, almost aggressive world than I did certainly 30 years ago, when it was extraordinary what you could get away with. And there were many bad aspects to the NHS, one of which was there really was pretty minimal accountability uh, and errors and mistakes just got swept under the carpet. And that's changed for the better, but it does make everything a much more stressful and it's much more, and it's very important to spread the burden of your anxiety when there are complaints and mitigation by discussing it with, with sympathetic colleagues. Yeah, that's really helpful indeed, uh, Henry, and uh, it leads us very well onto our second reflective uh, stage where we, we think about so what, uh, so what about this phrase, first do no harm, what are the impacts of it? And you've quite clearly uh, given uh, uh, personal experience and your experience uh, of uh, witnessing others. Um, the, the other old adage in surgery is that patients have their scars on the outside and, 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 and surgeons carry theirs on the inside, perhaps. Exactly. And, and yes. you, you, you've sort of uh, you've expanded on that. Um, in terms of other impacts, I suppose if we were to take the uh, position of first do no harm, it might uh, prevent us uh, doing something innovative, uh, something uh, highly risky, um, uh, something which uh, the chance of success is, is very small in. Uh, could you expand on, on how that could stifle um, the development, not only of surgery, but maybe of, of, of medical practice in general? That's very interesting because I was lecturing last week to the English, I think British um, Transplant Utilisation Committee, it was all the main transplant surgeons were there, because there is a problem and there's a threefold difference between different transplant units as to uh, what, which or when they're willing to operate or not. I'm not sure all the technical details are. So we were discussing this problem because... Um, Teamwork can go in either direction. You can have groupthink. You may have groupthink to be too too aggressive or groupthink to be too conservative. Um, it is, the, when I stress the importance of, of teamwork, and I prefer the phrase good colleagues and being a good colleague, because teamwork has such tedious, boring, bureaucratic connotations, you have to have grit in the oyster. I mean, a good team is one where there is conflict and disagreement. Um, which is then well-managed and contained by, by good leadership. But groupthink is, is a big problem. I mean, it's when a group of people will make a decision which they wouldn't make as individuals. And it may be they'll make a decision collectively which is more dangerous than they would normally decide, or more often in my experience in surgery, is the other way around. You know, you do, you, you, you're too timid. And, and you decide not to do something. So it's another of these very, very difficult balances. And you need, you know, you, need, you, need, you need different, you need different personalities in the team. You need some aggressive surgeons, you need some 
less aggressive surgeons. But the problem is actually having meaningful discussions between them. And usually what happens, at least in England, I don't know about Ireland and America, it's rather different, is people put agreement ahead of discussion. So they sort of aim for the sort of easiest, because you pick in England where we hate confrontation, um, English behaviour. Um, we, we tend to, you know, try to damp down disagreement, which, which is often, I can think of many cases where bad, ultimately bad decisions are made as a result. So again, it's a question of good, having good colleagues, but in a constructive, critical relationship. Well, I think that's uh, very important and, and very well said. And I think we've also found, including other team members, multidisciplinary team members, as you, as you have said, uh, anaesthetists, uh, pre-assessment uh, nurse specialists, etc., uh, in those decisions has, has really revolutionised um, uh, the, the decisions that are made by those, those teams. But you definitely need healthy, uh, healthy discussion, uh, yeah. as you've outlined. Um, it leads us obviously into another area that you mentioned in, in terms of registries and uh, um, outcomes um, and obviously particularly within the NHS this is a major area of focus in those, those, those specialties where, where outcomes can be easily counted like surgery um, and obviously most uh, people will be aware of a, a national joint registry for orthopaedic procedures a vascular registry, a cardiac surgical registry, and, and, and many other registries. Um, the, the purpose of these is often to, um, uh, to drive quality improvement, reduce inequalities in, in healthcare delivery and outcomes, um, rather than to police uh, poorly performing services. Would you like to expand a little bit on that? Because that's something that probably came in during your career and, and really hasn't quite reached its zenith yet. Well, in, in neurosurgery, outcomes are terribly hard. To, it's so much about quality, degree of brain damage. <laughs> that it's, e it's easier for the cardiac surgeons, where it's pretty binary. The patient's either alive or dead at the end of the operation. So I'm all for measuring outcomes. I mean, how can you get, if you don't know what's happening, what you can do, how can you make things better? In a sense, it, it goes about saying. The problem is getting good data um, and, you know, garbage in, garbage out. I, I worked for five years for NICE, National Institute of Clinical Excellence, on one of their technology committees, which I thought would be exciting, you know, operating equipment, things like that. In fact, it was all pharmacology um, and mainly cancer drugs. But it was very interesting because I, I would do the clinical assessments and go through all the... We, NICE would only accept randomised controlled clinical trials when deciding whether a, a new drug should be funded by the NHS or not. And what struck me so powerfully, even in the best randomized controlled trials, the quality of life data was incredibly patchy. Um, and it really was virtually useless half the time. And yet, it's all drugs for chemotherapy. And, and actually, the side effects of the chemotherapy are incredibly important as to whether it's worth using it or not, because most of these drugs are palliative, not curative. So that the problem is having good quality and not too much. You need simple, simple outcome measures. The, the British neurosurgeons tried to do something like the, the subarachnoid hemorrhage, but it, 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 it was too complicated. There are so many variables involved. 
But clearly with things like joint replacement and, and cardiac valve surgery, things like that, where you have simple outcomes, it, it, it should be done. Um, and although then you end up with some problems when the cardiac surgeons, what do you do about people who are slightly below, below the average, you know? And you can't, the patients aren't called, they can't all be operated on by the best surgeon. So there are, there are problems with it. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm all in favour of, of data collecting. Yeah, and you're quite right. You know, uh, I suppose any statistician amongst us would would tell us that uh, if the quality of the data in is, is, is not good, the, the quality of the data out is not good, and and, and a focus towards uh, uh, you know specialty specific um, outcome measures, and also a focus on what's important to the patient in terms of an outcome that that, that would be of value to them. And that leads us very well on to now our third stage of reflection. We've done the what, uh, the so what, and we're on to the now what, I suppose, to propose a way forward. I suppose I would like to touch on one area, Henry, and, and feel free to give a brief answer if it's not an area you want to go into. But clearly, when we talk about first do no harm, uh, we we approach situations uh, in healthcare where um, there are no good options and indeed the options may be futile. Um, um, and uh, this often comes into play at uh, end of life uh, stages um, and uh, whether we can support a natural death rather than uh, to keep trying to preserve life uh, when, when even that becomes futile. Is that an area that you would like to comment on or expand on your own views on that? Again, in my first book, I tell two two stories. One um, was about because I I had a specialised practice dealing with um, so-called low-grade gliomas, which are intrinsic brain tumors, true brain tumors, but which evolve over many years. They usually end up fatal eventually. And the role of surgery is, well, it's complicated. I was one of the first people to advocate radical surgery, doing it under local anaesthetic, which is now standard practice. But the tumours often, that usually grow back. Um, and then how often do you re-operate? Um, and I tell the story of one patient where I just couldn't bring myself to tell either the patient or the family. I've been looking after them for 10 years and had operated already three times. And I knew that really another operation, on the whole, when the tumours come back, they're more cancerous, more malignant each time. And I just couldn't bring myself to tell the family. They were desperate I should do something. You often come under terrible pressure as a doctor, from, from particularly from families, not so much as patients, perhaps, who say you must do something. And so I operated against my better judgment, although because I was too cowardly and I hadn't dared to really be honest and say, look, I don't think we should do anything more. And it just made everything worse, and he died more miserably as a result. On the other hand, there was another patient, that's not in the book, uh, a child with a recurrent um, tumour, had operated first when she was two and a half years old, came back, reoperated two years later, came back a third time, only child of an only mother. Uh, and the mother was on her knees in floods of tears, begging me to operate again. And I said, no. Um, and then she went to another surgeon who also said no. And then she found some young enthusiast elsewhere who did operate, and the child was kept alive for a bit longer. And then the mother wanted to sue me. And I mean, it, it's, 
it, it can be terribly difficult. But I also tell the story in my book of a slightly similar case and a man I've been looking after for 10 years. And eventually, when he came back yet again, and I felt it was basically inoperable. But on that occasion, I felt able, he was compus mentis with his family. I felt able to be straight with him and say, actually, I think it's time to stop. Which was terribly moving, and I burst, more or less burst into tears, and we all sort of burst into tears. And it, it was, the, I'm sure it was, the, I knew it was the right decision. And in a strange sort of way, it was very, well, it was very moving in a very positive way, you know, because it actually confronted the issue. I'd, be, I'd said what I really felt, and what I felt very strongly was the case. I know if he'd been in America, they probably would have done all sorts of stuff, which wouldn't have achieved anything. So it's a very, very painful experience, but, but very positive. And I one should always strive to be honest, but sometimes you know, some patients and families won't, just cannot accept there is no hope left. And it's very difficult as doctors, we're so reluctant to deprive people of hope. And we say, well, you might be wrong, you know? It's, it might be just a 1% chance I'm wrong. So it's, it's this terrible built-in ratchet for over-treatment in modern medicine, which is one of the reasons why healthcare costs are going up and up and up all over the world. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think those honest and open discussions uh, are extremely important. And, and obviously the patient who's living through the illness often knows what state of health they're in and what, what stage exactly. they are in their yeah. treatment. And they really, um, they're often very appreciative when someone opens their, their heart and soul uh, from the basis it. of their experience and, yeah. and, and thankful yeah. for a clear way forward, even if that is it, no additional treatment. And it probably gets a bit easier as you get older. I mean, with, with neurosurgical emergencies at night, hemorrhages in the brain, which is simple surgery, but given that uh, often the patients again will be left terribly damaged or going to die anyway, the decision whether to operate or not is very difficult. And if I said to Virginia, I'd had send me for scans over the internet, and if I said go ahead and operate, I'd get back to sleep, and if I said no, don't operate, um, I wouldn't get back to sleep, because that's where I might be wrong. And if I then went in and talked to the family myself, the, by definition, the patients were in coma. Um, and the, the plan was to operate, and the juniors would say, yes, the family say we must operate. If I went in, older, grey-haired, and spent a long time, the, the conclusion was almost the opposite. And the family would say, because I'd say to them, look, you know this person better than anybody else. What would they want? Whereas almost certainly my juniors would say, if we don't operate, they're going to die. If we do operate, they might survive. Which is a way of saying to the family, do you love this person enough to look after them when they're disabled? Which, of course, everybody will say, well, yes. <laughs> and it's difficult as a young doctor, partly because a young surgeon wants to operate anyway, because, you know, that's young surgeons. Um, but the, tr the trouble, the conclusion of that is, you know, was I going to get out of bed every night when I had a difficult operation in the morning? to go and have a long conversation with the family. It's another compromise you had to make. 
Henry, thank you very much for being uh, so frank and honest, open um, uh, in your reflections. Um, before we finish our chat, uh, I suppose, uh, and not to leave our listeners in uh, any suspense, um, would there be one or two um, lessons uh, that, that broadly uh, cover that area of, of, of first do no harm that you would like to leave in terms of your experience and reflections? Uh, you've given us many insights there, but if there was one key lesson you have learned through a, a long career not only caring for patients but teaching others uh, how to care for patients uh, how would you leave our listeners oh very very simple at every stage of your career ask for help okay okay well that's super important ask for help and i I shall try and do that uh, often and and perhaps more often than i used to Um, henry uh, on that note i would like to thank um, our guest uh, dr henry marsh very much for sharing his experience uh, and personal reflections. Uh, Thank you for listening uh, to this episode of uh, Professionalism Matters, uh, the podcast series, uh, which was on First Do No Harm uh, today, broadcast from the Centre for Professionalism in Medicine and Health Sciences at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland here in Dublin. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have, I would invite you to please tell your colleagues and friends If you would like to know more about the topic discussed in the podcast, please uh, do have a look at our podcast description for further information. If you're new to podcasts, perhaps listening for the first time, please make sure you subscribe to the channel uh, to make listening easier in future. You can access this podcast or any others in the series uh, on all the major apps. And for more information on the team, our experts and medical professionalism in general, Or if you would like to have a CPD certificate uh, for your listening to the podcast today, uh, please do not hesitate to contact us through our site. Please look at Professionalism Matters podcast series. The description and links are included. And remember, professionalism matters do matter. And goodbye for now. Thank you.